0: I'm Liz with Teachstone, and this is Teaching with Class. On today's episode, we go deeper into the instructional support dimension and look at how emotional support and classroom organization can play an important role. Hey guys! Hi! Um, Thank you for joining. Uh, So this episode is kind of unique in a couple of ways. It's the first time I've talked with two people at the same time in person. uh, And it's our first episode without a bunch of questions. And really, we just have one that we're hoping to sort of tackle in depth. Before I get into that one question, can I have you both
1: introduce yourselves? Sure. So I'm Emily Doyle, and I'm the Director of Community and Credentialing here at Teachstone. I have been around Teachstone for a while um, since the early days in 2010 so I've been around long enough to see a shift from just a pure focus on assessment and observer capacity building and you know class as a mandate to class as a professional development tool and really um, a way for teachers to deepen their their profession and their expertise and connecting with students, and having uh, achieving more positive outcomes for their classrooms. So, um, it's been really exciting to see over time. And I've been having a focus on thinking through uh, our credentialing programs here at Teachstone, so instructional support is a great topic to talk about in that context, so I'm excited for today.
2: Great, and my name's Matt Owens, I'm the Director of Content here at Teachstone been here three years. I joined the team as an instructional designer and I focused a lot on how we can improve our um, professional development for coaches such that they can be better supports for teachers. Um, Increasingly Teachstone is focused on the ways in which we can directly support teachers and in doing so make coaching more efficient and more effective. Before I came to Teachstone I was a teacher in Memphis, Tennessee for five years where I taught 8th grade writing and 10th grade English and I coached our um, fledgling or just getting started debate team
0: (laughs) (laughs) well thank you guys so we have been talking about instructional support and there's this one question that's really more of a comment that as soon as I read it I thought of you too so I'm going to dive in it says I would love to learn more about the importance of emotional support and classroom organization to raise instructional support learning outcomes
1: so that's a really interesting and relevant topic right now. Uh, one of the things that I've been really interested in is thinking through what are the elements outside of instructional support that have um, correlations and can really be seen as the gateways to help teachers really advance ultimately in their instructional support, but through the lens of improving other aspects within the class framework. So. Um, one of the activities that I recently did that I found really helpful, and actually, I think as a way to kind of come to this yourself, is I went through some of the more rarely seen or difficult indicators um, across the class framework, specifically in instructional support. So I think analysis and reasoning, I think you know certain indicators that we just don't see that often. Integration would be another one. I read through those long, high-range descriptions, and I actually picked out any time where that description of what this teacher was doing at a highly effective level was representative of another behavior somewhere else in the framework. So in doing that, that really helped me to see and uncover what are the other indicators across class that you must have in place or um, you must really quite frankly master to be able to do those much more challenging indicators well across instructional support. So for analysis and reasoning, I think a great example is in instructional learning formats uh, under the effective facilitation indicator. So when you read through analysis and reasoning in the manual, you're just seeing um, a description of a teacher who is facilitating so, so skillfully. And so I think finding those parallels and finding those other elements of the class really can help to answer that question and also serve as a guide in um, coaching conversations, you know, in teachers who are looking at their own practice and trying to uncover um, what is the pathway to doing instructional support. Yeah, we
2: often talk about strength-based coaching as not, you know, more than just a way to cultivate strong relationships with the teachers that we support, but as like actually an effective coaching methodology because when someone is already doing something effectively and you use that as an example, you want to be able to increase intentionality, right? By encouraging them to say, hey, how did the children react when you you know did this thing effectively? Mm-hmm. And why do you think that was? And thus reinforcing for them like, oh, this is a behavior I already do and I ought to do, you know, as often as is feasible. Mm, right. um, but the, the other thing, one, one of the common questions we get about taking a strength-based approach is like, what if you just don't see examples of the desired mm-hmm. behavior? Sure. And I think that's highly relevant and perhaps, you know, a little bit behind the initial comment that we started with is, right. what if you don't really see evidence of the, the kinds of instructional support interactions you want? And that's why I think the exercise Emily's encouraging you all to kind of go through in your head is really valuable because perhaps you don't see an indication of mm-hmm. that in IS but you might see something that is a building block in mm-hmm. one of the other domains so yeah. you know I often think I was I often think because I was coached to think right I was taught to think about the relationship between teacher sensitivity and quality of feedback mm-hmm. because the sensitive teacher is highly aware of the student's needs, both emotionally, behaviorally, but also instructionally and academically, they're more likely to be in a position to give really effective feedback. So if you see that kind of responsiveness around emotional needs, that's a building block for saying, like, okay, you clearly have a sense that, like, children's emotional needs ought to be met in this way, Mm -hmm. and you do these sorts of things. And we've talked about, you pointed out how that impacts the child, and you know, they get re engaged in the lesson and they interact more colleg- collegially with their peers. That's not right. <laughs> they interact in the ways kids ought to be with they interact their peers. Better. <laughs> um, I often think about parallel process and how this plays out in the workplace, but um, I, my point is like, then that's a stepping stone to say, well, what kinds of academic goals do you have for this particular student? Uh, the last time you asked them to use scissors, uh, what did you notice? And, and what might it look like t- to support them in getting to the next level of mm-hmm. motor development? So I, I think it's a, it's a really practical exercise mm-hmm. that you've recommended that can help. You know, I frame this as like a coaching conversation. But if you're a teacher listening, mm-hmm. you can, one, do this with your peers. Or two, like, think about it yourself. What are those things that you, you know you're already doing well within emotional support or classroom organization, and how might that link to effective instructional support interactions?
0: Matt, I feel like that was such a helpful example. I think the more, um, for me, where I can see like this matches with this, or if I see this, I think of this, uh, is really helpful. And I think one that we hear a lot in the community that teachers are struggling with is analysis and reasoning. Mm -hmm. Is there a sort of natural connection somewhere else Mm -hmm. that teachers can look for
1: yeah, I, I think that's a it's a good one. It's one that um, is definitely encompasses so many different so many different skills, uh, so many different teaching skills. In looking at the manual, like I had suggested earlier, reading through some of the effective examples and the high range descriptions, like I said, that's a great resource for just thinking about it. Uh, what sticks out to me as I look through that is, first of all, there's a note here around um, a preponderance of questions and activities that are open-ended to facilitate students thinking. So I think about um, open-ended questions and language modeling. And then I think another important piece to that is, and what I often see when I code classrooms, is you'll see a great question, and then there just may not be a lot of follow-up or the students might not have the opportunity to really go deep into it, to use a lot of thinking and language and expression So, I also think about regard, and I think specifically about student expression as another indicator um, that's really important when we're thinking about um, really pushing students to think. Like, it's about listening and creating space for their thoughts, even if they're not right, right? To, To experiment and really do some thinking and being open to that. And I think that's what regard is all about. And then, as I mentioned earlier, I think effective facilitation is also such an important one. Just in any of this, we've all had seen examples of this, or if you're a teacher, you've experienced this, or even as a parent, where you're like, "This is such a great thinking activity," or "This is such a great question," and you might just get like a shrug. (laughs) So then, what do you do, right? Um, So I think being an effective facilitator, making the activity interesting, is also a really important skill, as you because these things are hard and you're challenging children. And so you need to be a really strong facilitator as well. So those are some of the other, um, the indicators that I think about.
0: Yeah,
2: and I, I'll i give a, a less specific answer perhaps, but hopefully helpful. It's like another way to think about this question is like, when do you see students curious in your classroom? What What is it that gets them really engaged in thinking, why is this the way it is when do you kind of hear those questions of you know children comparing things or children really wondering Mm -hmm. why this is the way it is and and i think this is a link to regard in some ways right Mm -hmm. really paying attention to student interest and both at a micro level of you know this one child in this one moment is really interested in the way the air conditioning is blowing Mm -hmm. these frizzy things. So we're gonna talk about that. I'm gonna ask some open-ended questions about that and like strike at this like entirely unplanned opportunity. But also at a more macro level, like if children, I don't know, something in the news or something in a a show that is popular, like if if it's gripped your students, how Mm. might you then pull materials into the classroom that you can have a bit more of a plan around. Set up a center that is oriented to something that they've continually expressed interest around. Um, or even just thinking about you know, shifting your center materials such that you can kind of test what they get really interested in. Because student interest is really in many ways a prerequisite for a willingness to engage in, in the ways that analysis and reasoning asks of them um and it's not any different than us adults by the way like sure. we are most critical and most curious about those things that we're interested in so trying yeah. to to get them to be interested in any old thing is good as long as you're like remaining sensitive to their to their interests um, mm-hmm. and finding ways to latch on to those things that they're interested in in such a way that you can then stimulate high you know analysis and reasoning and work on learning objectives right like mm-hmm. if you're working on counting it doesn't matter what they're counting in many ways it's like get get it to be something that's really interesting to them and then you can also integrate you know questions
0: it's just like an you adult know. I have a harder time reading a book I'm not interested in it's not because I struggle as a reader It's yeah. because I'm not enjoying the book. right yeah yeah, yeah.
2: And it's not that you aren't going to finish the book, but perhaps you won't have as many conversations about it or ask Mm -hmm. those deep questions that you do ask of the books that really um, stimulate your curiosity.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. We've been focusing and talking a lot about analysis and reasoning, and I think classically the dimension of concept development and indicators like analysis and reasoning are sort of seen as you know, it's challenging and they are um, to achieve and to, to do well, but another, another indicator I just thought of that can be a really critical one in this is um, prompting thought processes within quality of feedback, another classically challenging dimension. What I find really interesting about that particular indicator is it's really just about prompting children to think about, you know, why they're thinking about something in a certain way or, or just, you know, using that follow-up question around, oh, tell me why you think that, tell me why you made that prediction. And so in a lot of ways, I think of prompting as one of the easier quality of feedback indicators because it's one of those that once you know to say it, it's pretty easy to train yourself how to ask that kind of follow-up question. Like it's pretty easy to kind of template that for yourself. I think of self and parallel talk in the same way. Like, I might not have known that it was great for me to map my actions with words in front of children, but now that I know, like, I can do that. Like, that's something I can pretty easily do. It just takes some intentionality Intentional, yeah. and some practice. Um, and so I think prompting, I, I think just considering, like, we're talking about IS in the context of it's really hard, but I think that there are certain behaviors that actually aren't, they're just more about awareness and knowing that it's good practice than anything else. And Weaving that in, um, particularly if you are a teacher who's, you know, questioning like, oh, I'm getting these low scores, like maybe there's no place to build on or no area of for growth, like that. I don't think that's true. I think there are some indicators that are really just about awareness, and they can really help you get to that next level and begin to see the sparks then in analysis and reasoning or these other places you can go.
2: In my, I think it was still my first year of teaching. I was introduced to Project Zero hmm. out of Harvard and you know, I won't go into all the thinking routines that they encourage, but um, out of that came like the most powerful question. And it's not as if I didn't know about this question, but it was reframed as kind of like a central part of my practice, which was, it was just so simple. It was what makes you say that. Mm -hmm. Um, And it gets away from why, because why sometimes is, can be perceived as accusatorial Mm -hmm. or critical. Whereas what makes you say that is truly like, I want to know and it was such a good no matter how tired I was or if I got lost in my lesson plan or if I had been with a small group and I kind of forgot what was happening in this other part of my classroom in terms of like what you know what's their developmental level or whatever mm. it's a it's a great fallback to just be like well what makes you say that tell me how you got here explain to me what you're thinking and you know, kids get better answering that question the more you ask it to them. So I think one roadblock Mm -hmm. that people experience with questions of this sort is that when students have not been asked that historically Mm -hmm. and maybe don't have a model for how to answer, you get silence or you get them answering something else or you take what was a really rich moment where they were excited about something and you make it like, well now it's like it's a, it feels like it's about learning, <laughs> right. um, which which is legitimate, right? Like yeah. I, I definitely experienced. Oh, now the teachers experienced teaching, that, right? Yeah, <laughs> like you don't want to make it so obvious, particularly mm-hmm. with the youngsters. Yeah. Um, but it, but it was a really powerful question of just mm. you know what makes you say that?
1: Yeah. It. It's pretty cool when you can create concrete strategies that are just about replacing like okay instead of a why like here's a replacement question that can be and then just sort of train yourself on that and another um, great one I heard it wasn't about questioning but it it was related to IS and thinking about like specific feedback I I think I was at a conference and I I heard years ago someone made the suggestion um, to replace the the good jobs the fantastic works just Train yourself to start those prompts with, I see, so that you it's a reminder to yourself to actually like describe what it is you're seeing. And in that way, just by starting with an I see statement, you're bound to give some specific feedback yeah. around what the child is doing, which yeah. I was like, ooh, what a great aha, like great advice, you know? <laughs> Both of those work
0: for any age level. You can mm, say yes. to That's a two-year-old, I see you use the color blue. And you can say to an eighth grader, "What makes you think that about the war that we're still right. covering, or mm-hmm. whatever it might be?" Totally. They work for any any age group.
2: Or what makes you crawl towards? <laughs> <I>
0: guess, <laughs> <laughs> it's a Harder
2: to explain. But, but at least you get into the practice, and you get this where reciprocity where you're.
1: I can think of an infant example. I can think yeah. of like a, a a communication extension. You know, mm-hmm. like, oh, "What made you make that face?" Or what made you? Yeah, yeah
2: absolutely.
1: <laughs> Yeah, it does work. It does work. For sure. Emily, you in the past have
0: talked about looking at these different dimensions almost like
1: logic equations. Mm -hmm. Can you explain that a little bit? Sure. So, um, you know, kind of in the examination of what, what are the most potent other indicators, right, for these particularly challenging IS indicators, you know, I started looking at those pairings, And what I found really interesting and helpful was to pull some of those pairings together that you could think about almost as a logic puzzle. So my example earlier I can use again for um, effective facilitation as it relates to analysis and reasoning was that you can have effective facilitation in ILF without seeing any analysis and reasoning, right? Like we see that all the time in, in coding classrooms. But I've never seen even mid-range analysis and reasoning without strong, effective facilitation. Yeah. And so, identifying those those logic statements that, as to Matt's point, can really help you say, okay, if I'm not seeing anything here, what are my you know what are what are my logic areas? So I can say, well, even though there's not analysis and reasoning going on that I can really pick out, I can pick out this indicator that you need to do this you know like it is it's not an option like effective facilitation has got to be there for analysis reasoning to be there and so by that logic you are you are doing it you're on your road to doing it so i think that's just you know a helpful way if you're sort of wondering like am i on the right track with identifying which indicators kind of map out do ask yourself that question and do that logic puzzle in your head can you do one without the other and if you can't do it without the other then chances are like that would be probably a great starting place for that coaching conversation or you know that that self-evaluation if you're a teacher and you're kind of looking at your own practice
2: yeah and i think that's particularly helpful when you think about your experience across the day because you know our jobs Mm -hmm. evolve based on the kinds of interactions we're engaging in with children so if we're serving them lunch know the the kinds of ILF that we might engage in are going to be different but it's just as relevant that ILF is there in order to create the context within which you know analysis and reasoning can occur for instance Um, or if you're in an upper grade you know like you're teaching writing if you're in your guided practice section where you're scaffolding and giving an awful lot of feedback you know your your facilitation techniques are going to be different than when You've got one student at the front of the class who's modeling their thinking about how they wrote their introductory paragraph. And so, you know, you you may not have the benefit right now of class data for every part of your Mm -hmm. instruction, but you can certainly self-reflect, you know, using the dimensions guide, using resources that are available um, either on my Teach Zone or the class learning community, or if you have a manual, even using the manual, um, and think about, how are you supporting children's thinking all across the day, Mm -hmm. Um, and where might you expect to find it more challenging to do so, where might you expect that there's a real opportunity to do it consistently every single day. You know, I I used to use, people call them all sorts of different things, do nows, bell ringers, whatever, but just some, Mm -hmm. as in the upper grades when children shift from classroom to classroom, something that every time you walk into my classroom, there's an opportunity to one, orient you to the day's topic, that's like the traditional role of it but it's also an opportunity probably to cultivate some deep thinking and so often I would while topically aligned ask these kinds of questions of like what do you see in this work of art and what makes you say that and so we would have these really stimulating conversations at a time of the class that could very easily have become more rote Mm -hmm. and more like remind yourself of the definition of this and right. record a summary of it, you know? So like finding those opportunities and finding ways to make routine the mm-hmm. the kinds of thinking you want will have the cumulative impact that, yeah. that we want for our children. It's kind of easy when we start looking at data and breaking this stuff down to forget that class scores are a snapshot. They're meant to be generalized. Right. Like as a teacher, you have the power to like increase the frequency with which your children get these interactions, you know? class scores aside.
0: Mm -hmm. I was going to say, and that also, in that activity, you are also creating an easy routine, cutting down on any sort of behavior problems that could arise by kids coming into the classroom and not knowing
1: what they're supposed to do in that two-minute transition solves a lot. Matt, you mentioned, you know, opportunities. I've heard you talk about language modeling and as a, a, as a starting place for instructional support and really, you know, many other many other benefits. I just wanted to give you the opportunity.
2: Sure. Well, I can, I can start with, you know, coming from a secondary background to, to like my first class training was toddler, and I don't, I'm not around little ones right often. Language modeling fascinated me more than anything else. That in regard. Um, Regards, the one I wish I knew as a secondary teacher more than any any other, and language modeling is the one that has changed the way I show up at like family reunions and <laughs> like shopping stores when there's little kids running around and yeah. I start talking to them. Um, but so one
0: parenting books for sure,
2: right? It's, so it's just fascinating. <laughs> um, first of all, second of all, it's a really concrete like to my point of like I can I can. Immediately start implementing language modeling when mm-hmm. I'm at a when I'm at a, like a, a family group setting. Like it's just it's easy in some ways because it's it's more concrete. You know, talk to children like they're adults mm-hmm. is a very powerful mm-hmm. idea. In some ways, it's like don't do something different. It's just do what you do with regular adults, assuming you're yeah. a sociable, gregarious <laughs> person. Um, and then it's easy in some ways. Ask open-ended questions, like ask questions to which they can respond with you know, more than a single word response. When they say something, say what they said and then extend it. I, I think it's meaningful in that like, you can provide opportunities for teachers to have success using class to make their jobs more fulfilling because they're going to start to hear children talk more and then, you know, we know that that's one of our goals in our ECE classrooms. So it's a very, not only talk more, but you know, they'll be using wider vocab, and, um, and it'll probably impact them in other ways that are really visible, which is which is powerful and invests teachers in learning more. Language modeling makes really clear the back and forthedness that mm-hmm. we want to occur within classrooms because you can you can hear it, right? Yeah. The interaction between a teacher and a child, where the teacher is noticing body language from across the classroom, is perhaps difficult to see unless you have someone helping you notice, like, or asking you, like, why do you think the teacher walked over? How did she know to go to this child in this moment? There's sometimes something infer- inferential unless you're really able to see the teacher's, like, facial expression Mm -hmm. change as she sees the child right whereas language is so you can hear it Mm -hmm. and you can see it and it's always reciprocal Mm -hmm. right it it is by its very nature a communication Mm -hmm. from one to another or from one to a group or from group to a group whereas we don't this this notion of awareness Mm -hmm. we use in a bunch we use the word aware in many different ways Mm -hmm. but in the context of the class tool it has this very specific back and forth right. kind of meaning. Yeah. And so you can build on people's understanding of conversation to say, you have all sorts of conversations with children. They're not all using the English language, mm-hmm. right? And we know from research that so much is communicated through body language, so much is communicated beyond what we say or even intend to communicate. Um, and that can come across in all of the emotional support Dimensions and and I think even in classroom organization, when you think about mm-hmm. the tone of your redirections, mm-hmm. um, is is like a subtle. Perhaps that's not exactly body language, but it's more than just what's explicitly said. And so, the back and forthedness of kind of it is kind of what I what I tend yeah. to talk about as yeah. like it's a it's a concrete representation of that.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. The other thing I think about is something related to something you mentioned earlier re- around time of day, and you know like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We get the question all the time around like how like am I supposed to do instructional support during X, during mealtime or during transition? And when I think about language modeling as you know a gateway to other other behaviors, other dimensions, it's I think about some of the most interesting mealtime conversations you know I've seen in the classroom and some of the most interesting transitions where it really is about using language and about having really just having conversations with children. So, you know, in thinking about times of day and, you know, what is often considered non-traditional instructional time, right? It's not circle time where the teacher is, you know, presenting a a lesson, quote, unquote. I I just see language modeling is so ripe with opportunity. And, And this is another
2: place where I think bringing up routine is meaningful because I could picture a teacher being like, Oh my gosh, you want me to plan every single mm-hmm. minute of my day? Mm-hmm. And certainly that is not feasible nor even advisable, <laughs> considering that we know regard you know showing regard for students right. is incredibly important. And if you're overly planned, it has this like I, I think subconscious effect of discouraging us mm-hmm. from following. We're students going off
1: plan. Right. Yeah, right. right. So not to mention, you just can't plan for what how students are going to respond to what you say and do. Yeah. You, you can try to predict, but <laughs> yeah, and like I, <laughs> they're I, humans; they're unpredictable. My <laughs>
2: inclination is probably more planful than many, because I think you you can be flexible in more intentional ways when you have a plan from which you're diverting. Mm-hmm. But transitions are a great time to have some routines that are full of language and that encourage language and that are not necessarily topically bound, but allow you to really follow whatever it is the kids are most interested in in the moment. And the same at lunch, like you could have routines, even just supports for yourself, like a set of questions you tend to ask. As they become routines, it actually reduces your planning burden and lets you walk into your classroom with plans for those parts where you really need it and lets you feel comfortable and relaxed that you're, you're doing you know, the best you can to stimulate your kids' thinking and language development in those parts of the day that you really, you don't need to plan for mm. as much.
0: I think the big question, when anyone asks a question about instructional support, what they're really asking is how do you get to mid-level or how do you get to that point where the data says, this is the, the threshold for impact or this is where I'm going to see results. Um, And I feel like everything you've said has sort of answered that question, but is there anything more that you feel like this this is the key
2: well, if, there, if there were a key, I think right. we would. I think
0: we
1: would <laughs> it out. Yeah, yeah. yeah
2: we'd be posting um, right. that online yeah. and, and closing down this job at T right.
1: C <laughs> Or just you know, then we wouldn't be seeing you know the the struggle to get to the threes and the fours if it was if yeah. there was a silver bullet.
2: I do think something you said is is a is useful though, is that your the goal here, by and large, is to move from low to mid as consistently as you can mm-hmm. and while that's strange like, right. right like that's that's like a, just a strange thing that occurs within the context of the tool where we we start to see impact on children in the high levels of emotional support and classroom organization and the mid levels of instructional support we start to see it really positively impacting children it it is really important that people believe change is possible if you don't it's immensely frustrating not rewarding and hard to get started so i think one one thing for for coaches and teachers alike is that we do see improvement in instructional support when there is extended intentional efforts to improve instructional support when people are supported when they're in communities where you know Improvement is normalized, and feedback is specific, actionable, and kind. and And you know, where we create emotionally supportive and organized settings for adult learners, we see improvement. And where when we provide support for adult learners that that is akin to what we want for children in terms of like helping them think about their practice, helping giving them feedback, quality feedback on their practice and helping them develop the language with which they can discuss classroom interactions more effectively with their peers, um, we, we do see instructional support scores improve. The re- I think the reason we don't see it as much as we'd like is that those are difficult things to do. They require like a systematic effort, um, so to the teacher trying to do it on their own, it it's, a, it's difficult. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, yeah, I, it's a systematic effort and it's a I'm not just hyper laser sharp focused on these three dimensions it's like yeah. I'm also actively getting sixes and sevens in es and Co for for the improvements to really be in, to cross the threshold in instructional support so you're you're doing it all you're not just doing instructional support and so I think that that key to really seeing like I know if if you're a perfectionist and you're looking to be all sevens all the time it's hard but acknowledgement, like if you're getting threes and fours on instructional support, you're doing really well and not just in instructional support in the other dimensions because those scores aren't happening unless you're doing really well in the other dimensions. And at those levels, like you are having an impact and the difference in just one point can make a world of difference. So it it feels like a little incremental change feels like a little and it takes time, but it's, it's a lot.
2: Particularly when you think about how much time you spend with children, yeah. <laughs> if you're doing that consistently now, like that's that's a dramatic, uh, dramatic change. Mm-hmm. Though, though I think the one other thing I'll say is is another tactic recommendation that's been that I think would have been really useful for me when I was teaching, and thus I think is useful to share with teachers is to make a matrix or a grid or a table, whatever. Where on the left hand side, you have all the the different parts of your classroom, all the different opportunities you have to interact with children. So, you know, when they arrive, morning meeting, or, you know, just whatever your parts of your interactions are. So, for me, I would think like when I had arrival duty, like those were opportunities for interactions. Um, When I had homeroom, those were opportunities for interactions. And then I would have said for my lessons, like uh, the do now is, is another opportunity the you know first part, whatever it was called that particular day. And then to the right, make, you know, either look at ES, C O IS and think about what opportunities do I have within these domains. Or if you really want to go get it, <laughs> list out every single dimension and think about which parts of the day can I create regular opportunities for these kinds of interactions. And maybe you start by just focusing in on maybe one dimension from each domain, I would recommend as a starting point. Mm-hmm. Um, or if you're, you know, you've got a cup of coffee in a couple <laughs> hours, like go for it and share it with your support system, whoever it may be. If it's the teacher next door, or maybe the teacher that inspired you to get involved in teaching, or a coach, or whomever. Mm-hmm. Um, and while while somewhat theoretical, it can help you then think about how you will practically integrate interactions that you're you're not yet doing you're having trouble figuring out how do i do this while i'm doing all these other things you know one answer is maybe that's not the right time of day to try to integrate that sort of interaction for children maybe it's right before and after that Uh, so that's just another i think Mm -hmm. approach that, that can be really useful and that can work really well in conjunction with all these other considerations of i'm already doing this well how can i use that at more times of day? Or how can I use that to try these new interactions in instructional support that have, you know, have, have mm-hmm. been more difficult yeah. to do consistently?
1: Or if you can spend time in other classrooms mm-hmm. with other teachers yeah. or, you know, watching videos of other teachers doing this, those examples can also make such a huge difference. It's like, okay, like now that I've seen it, that that just can make a big difference. I interviewed a teacher once that we had, um, we had done some filming with and he was fantastic upper elementary teacher and I asked him what is his one bit of advice for, for new teachers and he just said observe other teachers just get in the habit of making yeah. space for that it'll it'll really change and and to that point it, it is about like community building and like you're not alone in this there are other teachers in your program there are opportunities to get connected to the class community there are other opportunities there's many teacher communities out there so to the extent you can expose yourself to others. You're not alone, it's not an isolation, and there are great examples everywhere to learn from.
2: And when, and when doing that, whether it's an online video mm. practice or you're sitting in that room, a question to ask yourself, in addition to what is this teacher doing to push children's thinking and language development, is what did they do to create this opportunity for that interaction? Um, and that's where you start thinking about, well, if that student didn't feel emotionally supported by the teacher, mm-hmm. they maybe wouldn't have take the, taken the risk of answering an open-ended question, or if there weren't clear expectations about how many students were in each center, it might have been too crowded. And So you, you, that's one way to start to look at these relationships to take us back to the initial question, mm-hmm. is to say, what has the teacher done to create the opportunity for this level of you know effective instructional support interactions to even occur and then and there lies some of the building blocks towards mm-hmm. effective instructional support
0: man i think you guys nailed it <laughs> thank you yeah thank yeah. you for having us on thank
1: you for having us
0: Thank you for joining us for Teaching with Class. We'll be back in two weeks with an episode around back to school. Until then, log into the class learning community. Let us know how we're doing and what questions or topics you want us to cover next.